0: I'll start this morning with a scripture from Matthew, though our text will be elsewhere. Matthew chapter 7 verse 28 tells us, And so it was, when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one having authority, and not as the scribes the people hearing Jesus speak recognized he did so as one having authority. And then Jesus in Matthew 28 at verse 18 told his disciples the extent of his authority. Then Jesus came and spoke to them saying all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In John 17 at verse 1, Jesus in his prayer to God spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Not only did Jesus claim to have all authority. But during his ministry, he demonstrated in many ways. He demonstrated his power over the forces of nature, over demons, over ill health, and he forgave a man's sins, which only God can do. There were many ways he demonstrated his divine authority. Well, Jesus truly does have all authority. And the practical point we find is that we are to submit to the Lord's authority. Colossians 3.17 refers to everything that we do and everything that we say, teaching us that everything is to be done or said in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, we are to do what the Lord tells us to do. How do we know what the Lord tells us to do or wants us to do? Colossians 3.16 says, "'Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom.'" His word is the New Testament. Hebrews 9 and 15 says that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And if we will search his word diligently, we will know what he wants us to do. When we comply with his wishes, we have the Lord's approval, and we will be setting a good example for others to follow. Today, we're going to look at something the Lord commands us to do. Read with me now our text. It's a very short text, and it's in John chapter 13 at verse 34 and 35. John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. From these verses we learn that the Lord commands his followers to love one another. This is a direct command and is one of the ways scripture tells us how to please God. Direct command. To appreciate more fully what Jesus has commanded us to do we need to look at the setting in which Jesus gave this particular command. This is called studying passages in their context. If we look at the setting in which various things occurred, it will help us to understand more fully exactly what is taking place. So let's look at the setting, what was taking place when Jesus gave the command that we find in John 13, verse 34. We need to know what's going on. Now this was a short time before Jesus was arrested, and he and his apostles met in the upper room to eat the Passover meal. Passover was a very important feast for the children of Israel, and was to be observed on the evening of the 14th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar. The meal consisted of roast lamb, unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and of course, the fruit of the vine. The law of Moses gave detailed instructions for eating the meal. This meal was in remembrance of how God had delivered them from bondage years earlier when their ancestors were in Egypt. Each year, God wanted his people to remember that event. Jesus ate the Passover meal with his apostles in the upper room, and on this occasion, Jesus gave instructions for something else. Jesus took two elements, the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine, and he gave instructions for eating his supper. I'm reading now from Luke chapter 22 at verse 14. He sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Jesus gave instructions to his followers to eat the Lord's Supper, and he said, do this in remembrance of me. Each Lord's Day, we are able to remember what Jesus did on our behalf. John doesn't show this to us, but Luke does. That's why we always study the verses that deal with a particular matter from wherever they're found to help us see the full picture. I believe we would all agree that this was a very serious situation. Jesus knew what was about to happen to him, and he conveyed that information to his apostles. He said that he was going to be betrayed. Jesus knew he would be killed. He knew all that was going to happen. Now, Jesus has told the apostles of his coming betrayal, and he has given them instructions for his supper. What did the apostles do? Well, the first thing we see is in verse 23, where we are told they began to question among themselves which one of them would betray him. Then we see verse 24. But there was also rivalry among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. This issue had come up before among the apostles during the Lord's ministry. Can you imagine when Jesus was assembled with his followers, gave instructions for eating his supper in remembrance of him, and told them he would be betrayed? What were they concerned about? which one was the greatest. There was rivalry among them. Here we see God's patience. Jesus was very patient, far more patient than I would have been. If I'd been in that situation, I would have been tempted to say, fellas, we've dealt with this several times already. Pretty bad time to be discussing which one of you is the greatest. I imagine that many of us would want to throw up our hands and been tempted to walk away saying, I've had it with you guys. Jesus is very patient, because he knows that people are sometimes slow to grasp the whole import of a situation. He had already dealt with this twice, Luke nine forty-six, Matthew 18, one through four, for example, maybe more than twice. Jesus dealt with the situation a little differently this time, though. Let's go back to John chapter 13. And look at how Jesus dealt with the situation on this occasion. What did he do? He responded to that strife by washing the apostles' feet. Look at verses 4 and 5 of John 13. So he rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Jesus arose from the meal, took off his garment, put a towel around him, took a basin with some water in it, and began to wash the apostles' feet. Can you imagine what was going through their minds? They're arguing about which one is the greatest, and Jesus is doing something only a servant would do. Let's go down to verse 12, So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet," Jesus is saying, I have just taught you a valuable lesson by my example. I am your master and Lord. You call me that and you call me that correctly. He said, if I would humble myself to the point where I would wash your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. Instead of being concerned about who was the greatest, they were to show some humility and be a servant. Jesus said, you'll be blessed if you follow my example. What a wonderful approach, using this strong example for teaching. After Jesus dealt with the situation in the way he did, you do not find anywhere in the Bible where the apostles began arguing again about who was the greatest. I think they finally got it. And sometimes people need a stiff nudge to reach a point of understanding. At this point, Judas leaves, and after he has left, Jesus had many things to say to the other 11 disciples. What Jesus had to say to them is recorded in chapters 14, 15, and 16. Now, though, let's consider our text, John 13, verses 34 and 35. I'm going to read it again. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Stop right there. So looking at the context, as long as they were arguing about which was the greatest, were they showing love to each other? No, they were not. Not long from now, Jesus was going to give these same apostles the Great Commission. How could they be successful in carrying out the Great Commission if they were arguing about which one was the greatest? If they loved one another, they would be successful. That's the setting, the context for the Lord's command. Once we understand all that information, it will help us more fully appreciate what Jesus commanded of his apostles. We need to look at this commandment in more detail because this commandment applies to us today. Jesus referred to this as a new commandment. Is this the first time that God's people had been instructed to love each other? No. Back in the Law of Moses, in Leviticus 19, verse 18, Moses wrote to the children of Israel, you shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. The command for God's people to love others had been around for a long, long time. When Jesus said that this commandment is new, we understand that it was not new in the sense that it was the first time God's people had been commanded to love others. So what was new about the Lord's command? If we look, it does indeed say something new. The Lord's command was new in the sense that his followers, today his followers are Christians, are to love each other, notice, as I have loved you. You don't find that in Moses' law. Moses' law said that God's people were to love their neighbors as themselves. There wasn't anything about following the Lord's example to love. The newness of it is implicit in the words, even as I have loved you. There is a deeper intensity in this love that can be found in Moses' love thy neighbor as thyself. In that commandment, which embraces the law, self-love was assumed and made the standard for the love of neighbor. The new commandment, on the other hand, is based on a new principle, measured by a higher standard than love of self. It is based on Christ's love, which is a self-abandoning, a self-sacrificing love and it is, I fear, the lack of love among Christians that's a glaring weakness in faith today. Jesus had many things to say to his disciples in chapters 14, 15, and 16, and as we study those scriptures, the import of this new command becomes more apparent. Let's look at some of this now. In John 15, verse 12, and I read, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. That's the greatest act of love that a person can show to give their life on someone else's behalf. Sometimes we read about people doing heroic things to save someone else. We say that was great love. The greatest act of love is to give your life for somebody else. Isn't that what Jesus was about to do? He said, love each other as I have loved you. And shortly after he spoke these words, he gave himself for our sins and died at the cross. Paul talks about this when he wrote to the Christians in Ephesus. He said in Ephesians chapter 5, starting verse 1, Therefore, be followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. The Apostle Paul is referring to the love that Christ demonstrated on our behalf. He says we are to walk in love. In other words, we're to do what Jesus taught us to do in John 13, verses 34 and 35. God's people have been commanded to love others for years, but we are to follow the Lord's example of holy, sacrificial love. There's something else about the Lord's command. I'd like us to go back to John 13, verse 35. Jesus said that the way that we respond to his command will tell others something about us. How did Jesus say that his followers are to be identified here? He says, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if, there's a condition, if you have love for one another. People will recognize us as the Lord's true followers based on our love for one another. Let's look at two congregations that we read about in the Bible. One positive example and one negative. First, the positive example. Turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter four. And if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter four, go down to verse nine, and look at the congregation that met in the city of Thessalonica. It says there, but concerning brotherly love, You have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But I urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more." That's a high commendation. Paul said, concerning brotherly love, I don't have to write to you about it. You already understand it. He commended them for showing their love to others. Then Paul went on to say, increase more and more. Do you ever get to the point where you say, well, I've got enough love? I don't think so. The Bible says increase more and more. Even to this congregation that was highly commended, notice what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. To this congregation, noted because of its members' love for one another, there was an admonition to grow in love. Not to become satisfied, but to continually increase and grow in their love for each other and towards others. Now a negative example. If you recall in Revelation chapters two and three are addressed to the seven churches of Asia. Let's read a few things about what the Lord had John write to the church in Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2 verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. We know that imagery is explained in chapter 1. When we examine these seven messages that are found in chapters two and three, there are two statements in common. The first, the Lord says, I know your works. In other words, the Lord knows what's going on in his congregations. The second statement the Lord makes is he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. From that we understand, that we do not receive spiritual information regarding our salvation by any inner impulses, by dreams, by impressions, or inner strivings of the soul, but by listening to the words given by the Holy Spirit. We need to study this very carefully and make proper application and then comply with the Lord's will. Now, back on to Revelation chapter 2, we're at verse 2. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary." If we stop right there, it sounds to me like the church in Ephesus was the ideal congregation. They were true to the Lord, They were devoted to serving him. They would not put up with false teaching. They tested people who came to their midst and claimed to be apostles. And if they were determined not to be true apostles, they were rejected. These people had not given up. They had not fainted. They were serving the Lord faithfully. Sounds like the ideal church, doesn't it? Christ himself commended the diligence and faithfulness of the Ephesian church. Numbers four, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. The charge is not that they were in danger of leaving their first love, but they had already done so. The first love of every true congregation is our Lord himself. And what is indicated here is the departure in heart of the Ephesian church from their Lord who had redeemed them. The congregation did not have the love that it did earlier. If they lost their love for the Lord, then how could they follow his new commandment? This congregation had grown somewhat cold and the Lord knew it. He said, there's something wrong with your love. But did the Lord give up on that church? No. We read on verse five, remember, Therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat, from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This was not a hopeless situation, and the Lord called upon the members of the congregation to restore the love that they had at the beginning. As we examine various congregations in the New Testament, we see that some are highly commended because of their reaction to the Lord's command for the members to love each other. Some had problems in those areas, of course, And we need to be sure that we are doing the Lord's will. Let's contrast those two churches for just a moment. Which one would have been more attractive to outsiders? A congregation consisting of members who love each other or a congregation consisting of members whose love has gone cold? You know which church would have been more attractive to those on the outside. Jesus said, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We can see that the love of God and the love of the brethren are inexorably intertwined. It's a very serious matter, and we ought to have a desire to know all that the Bible has to tell Christians about loving one another. Today, let's look at what John tells us. In First John. Here we will find responsibilities given to us, but also some blessings. Let's look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 9, 1 John 2 and 9. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. How important is it for us to abide in the light? Well, if you look at John chapter one, verse seven, we read, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Christ Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. John says, if we walk, abide in the light, we have the promise that the Lord's blood will continually cleanse us. What is one way we can determine if we are abiding in the light? John said it's on the basis of our love for one another. He was proclaiming the tremendous truths already revealed by Jesus nearly a whole generation previously. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness let's look at First John again, chapter three, this time verse 11. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. In verse 14, John says, if a Christian loves his brother, he shows that he has gone from death to life. In chapter three, now verse 16, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let not us love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. John begins by talking about the love of God and that we know God loves us because of what he did for us at the cross. John went on to say that others can see our love at work. If we see a brother who is in need and we supply that need, we are demonstrating that love. It's one thing to talk about love. It's something else to show it. Now first John chapter three again, this time verse 23. And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. This verse teaches us that loving one another is as important as believing in Christ. Again, we see how these two are joined together. You cannot separate them and be a Christian. First John chapter four now, verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Knowing God involves loving our brethren. 1 John 4 verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. God dwells in those who love their brethren. We certainly want God to dwell in us, don't we? God wants us to meet certain requirements, and one of those requirements is that we are to love one another. We're still in chapter four, now down at verse twenty if someone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. These verses show us that the love of God includes loving his children. 1 John chapter 5 verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Sort of saying it the other way around, isn't it? Loving our brethren is associated with loving God and obeying his will. In John 13 verses 34 and 35, we saw that John was present when Jesus gave this commandment. When John taught and wrote, he had a lot to say about this very special subject. That's why John has often been called the apostle of love. As far as we know, John was the only apostle to die of natural causes after living a very long life. Sometimes he's referred to as John the Elder. Can you imagine the things that that man saw throughout his life? I can appreciate that when I read his letters. And he often wrote this, "'Little children love one another.'" Why did John say that? It was because he heard Jesus say those words and he understood how important they are. We are so very blessed to have all these writings recorded by the apostle John for our benefit. He heard what Jesus said and he recorded it. In his letter that we call First John, he wrote all these extra details to help us understand exactly what the Lord requires and show us how we are blessed when we carry out the Lord's will. In this brief look, we have seen several verses about Christ telling his followers to love each other. He commands it and he requires it. We learned from the New Testament how to be saved. We need to hear the word believe in Jesus, repent of our sins. We must confess that belief that Jesus is the son of God and be baptized for the remission of sins. And if we follow these steps, the Lord adds us to his church. If anybody needs to respond, either to dedicate themselves to Christ, be buried with him in baptism and become part of the work that he has for us, or if you need to ask for prayers on your behalf, Won't you come forward while we stand and sing our invitation song, number 644, Trust and Obey.